Hello and welcome to Before Our Friends Die. You're joined by me, Kavan, and this is the Akin Saltfish Digital Network. Today, I'm joined by a very, very special guest. His name is Trey Ventor Griffiths, and he is a public researcher. That means historian, sociologist, and all things above. He's fantastic in what he does, and he's doing some great research right now into the Windrush generation of Northampton. So you may have heard the stories around Windrush centred in London or other major cities in the UK, but Trey's research is unique in that it focuses on this small town in the Midlands. So when I heard that, I wanted to get stuck straight in. So without further ado, let's do it. So Trey, thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it. How you doing? I'm good. Good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, yeah, good. I mean, I've just moved house, so any viewers who recognise my background will recognise that this is new. It's very bare. I need to get some signs up or some pictures or something like that. But other than that, I'm all good, and I really appreciate you joining me today on this Tuesday morning. So, your work is around Windrush and almost like the hidden stories of Windrush. What made you, um, you know, be inspired to do this work? Um, so I just want to say that it it's not exclusively on Windrush. So the pit it started with the first generation of um, Caribbean people that came here after the Second World War. So, um, but I'm also talking to sort of the Windrush children as well. So nice. those who came as children, um, and also first generation, um, uh, I guess Caribbean British people that were born here in Northamptonshire. Um, or, or came here as well and um, went from elsewhere when they were children but still born um, in the UK so I'm collecting like I guess three generations of um, stories wow. of um, uh, Caribbean people so those who came here and those that were born here to somehow um, write some sort of historical um, narrative um, about Northamptonshire and um, the Caribbean communities that lived here um, from around 1948 um, to around the middle of the 1980s as well. So there's three generations of stuff here um, that I'm looking at, and not just Northampton, but also I'm, I'm trying to get the Wellingborough story as well, because um, Wellingborough also has its own community. And also I've found some, I've found some people who moved to Ketrin as well mm. in the 1970s, um, but that narrative is. Um, to be confirmed as well. So hopefully, hopefully I will get it. It's just about when that interviews will, will happen because I've, I've already identified some people, and people have been highlighted to me um, in and who lived in Ketchum. Um But it's just about when that's going to happen. But hopefully, it will happen. So when you talk about uh, those three generations of stories from the forties to the eighties, is that yeah. a well sort of explored narrative elsewhere in the country? Um. I would say in terms of the original Windrush, only in terms of major cities. And to be honest, if I'm being specific, I would say London, um, because even Birmingham doesn't really have as much on it as I think it probably should. Yeah. There's there was one book called Black Handsworth, which is by Kieran Connell, and that was about Handsworth in the 1980s. And there's there's other bits and stuff around Windrush in um, Birmingham. In terms of like the popular and what has been put in the media and stuff like that, the literature and the films and the TV shows and things like that, that have been made a lot. Most of it is about London. Um, and when we say black post war black British history, predominantly, 
it just means black London, mm. if we're being specific. And it's black, it's really black England. Um, because um I've got friends out in Wales who are doing stuff around black Welsh history, black Welshness and black Welsh history. And they even they've been excluded from the whole idea right. of black British black British history. Um so I think um yeah, so is it explored elsewhere? It might be in the communities themselves, but not in terms of the mainstream print media and think things like that. And more stuff could be written to properly articulate those histories um, to wider audiences. Because um, as you know, like um, in Northampton, we get a lot of students, black students from, from North London, yes, yes. South London, and they and they come and they come to this town and didn't know that we have a historical caribbean community yeah and when you tell them that they're, they're very very surprised because they didn't know but everybody knows that caribbean people went to brixton and notting hill yeah and places, places like that and whether you've been to brixton notting hill or not you know that because that's what that's the narrative that has been pushed around black communities but i think more could be done about the the places that aren't that the places that are outside of london and really outside of the major cities so um towns like northampton um, but also villages um, and the coast as well. Um, but yeah, there's, there's there's plenty of other stories outside of Northamptonshire that have, have not been told about small towns, the, um, coastal places and the villages and the rural and, and the countryside. Um, but yeah, I think, that's, that, I think that answers your question. What's your positionality in this? So you're born and bred in Northampton um, and... You spoke about the students not really knowing that there was a historical uh, black presence in Northampton. Mm. What has that been? Something that's crossed your mind and sort of shaped your identity mm. in discovering um, that black Northampton identity or black Northampton history, I should say. Um, I was raised in Northampton, but I was not born in Northampton. Oh, I excuse came me. Here, I came here from London actually when I was a young child, um, but my mum's family. Um, um, came to Northampton, I believe it was 1962, from Grenada, the Caribbean island of Grenada, and effectively have been here ever since. Ever since then, um, so my own positionality here is grounded in my own family history. Mm. Um, so my, so my mum's mum's parents lived in Northampton as well. Um, they lived in Abington, um, like many Caribbean families did. Um, they also lived. Um, well, the, when they first came here, they lived off the Barrett Road as well. Okay, yeah. Um, and I think they lived they lived in two houses before they settled on Bostock Avenue. Um, and they lived, lived on Bostock Avenue for about 30 years. And they died in 1994, 1995. Um, so, yeah, my own positionality is grounded in my own family history. And then when I tell students about this, they're shocked. They, mm. they think black people outside of London effectively in some cases i found we we are basically an endangered species sometimes <laughs> in how we're, in how we in how um some londoners have think about <laughs> blackness outside outside of outside of london yeah um, so yeah um but then when you do tell them they're they're, they're actually interested so they don't know to know yeah. until you tell them and then they want to know more mm. basically you spoke earlier about some of the media representations of yeah. blackness and black Britishness. Just for the benefit yeah. of the audience, I suppose, could you could you list list off a, a couple of those and, and what they what they are? 
Yeah, um, so I'll start with films like, um, let's go uh, Babylon, 1980. Um, so that tells the story of um, a black man living in London, Caribbean. I think he was British, born in Britain, but had Caribbean parents and basically how he navigates that that world. Um, there's also the um, Small Axe films, the Steve McQueen films, mm. um, as well, which tells you stories about race relations in London uh, in the 1970s and 1980s through, I think, five interconnected um, uh, films, yeah. um, and shorter film or sh- shorter episodes, episodic films. Um, Again, it's set, set in London as well. Um, there's the film Pressure by Horace Ove. I think that's 1970s, I think. I think it might be 76, about the black power movement in London as well. Um, so that's sort of where I'm, what I'm getting at. Um, and then more recently, there's the documentary. So when the... Um, the uh, on the Windrush, the one, the David Olasoga one about the hostile environment. Okay. Um, where he explores the history of the hostile environment, and again, that was centered around mainly London, but other cities like Wolverhampton as well. I think he goes to Wolverhampton to interview um, one uh, participant too. Um, but yeah, quite a lot of the stuff that gets published around Windrush, especially on on screen, is centered around major cities um, in terms of literature. Um, Small Island by Andrea Levy, um, as well, was set in London. Um, the one of the most iconic texts on this is Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvon, who's a Trinidadian um, author, and he he wrote he wrote the whole book in dialect as well. Wow! Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, but then that whole um, that whole narrative around Windrush post-war, it's very it's very urban and london centric mm. and whilst that's not a problem we need other types of stories because when i watched small acts i can i liked it and I, I loved it and i thought it was really good but i couldn't relate to it because i'd grown up in um northampton um and people i grew up with um may identify with it but also um there are other stories that need to be told mm. about um black communities in britain but also diasporic caribbean communities in britain as well, what, what about the stories about Bedford, for example, because there's a whole Windrush community in Bedford as well that doesn't mm, really, mm. Um, doesn't hasn't been told. Rugby as well, which is just down the road from Northampton in Warwickshire. Um, and interviewing people, I interviewed one guy who came from Doncaster and he's told me that in Doncaster there's, there was a Windrush presence when he was there, right. um, I guess, in, in the 60s. <clears throat> um, yeah, so those... Not it, so those smaller towns, but also um, sort of minor cities as well, um, and that's that's basically the point of view my my project comes. Not only centralising Northamptonshire, but also decentralising London, but also um, perhaps inspiring different types of stories that get told in on film and on TV and in media and stuff like that. I think one of the reasons why we need those um, various stories and that diversity within the story that's being told is there's a, and I apologise in advance because I cannot remember her name, but there is a, a Nigerian female writer 
who said a quote around stereotypes that goes along the lines of stereotypes aren't always incorrect, but they are incomplete stories. Um, and, you know, centering London as the only black experience you can have in the UK is an incomplete story. And what yeah. that does is it fuels stereotypes that one, we are only a urban monolith, but two, that we don't have a place or space in greenery, in the countryside, in rural environments and that has various knock-on effects for tourism for safety in 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 rural environments and also just generally feeling like you're welcome so yeah i really appreciate you bringing that up and bringing that to the fore i think you're doing amazing work in this field one of the things i wanted to touch on is around windrush uh this year is 2023 just just to timestamp the episode um and uh we celebrated the 75th anniversary of windrush now for those who don't know, what does that even mean? What does Windrush mean? And how did it transition from uh, an event to a scandal? Um, well, Windrush, or the Windrush generation, um, came to Britain, I believe. Well, it, it was named after the ship. So the, the ship, that the first ship that came in June 1948 was called, I think, the Empire Windrush. Um, and I believe the, wind, the term the Windrush generation was coined by a person on that ship called Sam King. Oh. Um, and um, that that term began to mean not just the people that came on that ship, but also the people that came afterwards between 1948 and 1971, with the sort of the, the bookend moments of that being the 1948 Nationality Act, and I think the 1971 um, Immigration Act. Um, and that's basically what we mean by the Windrush generation. Um, and then effectively how it became a scandal is that even during those points, the government were doing everything they could to um, make life as problematic as possible mm. for Caribbean people coming. They did not want these Caribbean people to come. Um, so when they when they built that act, they didn't expect black people and brown people to take opportunity as I guess so-called citizens of of the empire, but what they wanted were white people to come from right. Australia, South Africa, Canada, those sorts of countries. Um, so, but when they had this whole group of black people and brown people coming, um, they then wanted to start. Well, it wasn't just conservative government. It's quite easy to throw the Tories under the bus, but it was originally it started with Labour and um, Clement Attlee's government. So, so-called the greatest socialist leader wanted to throw the Caribbean, wanted to divert the Windrush ship to East Africa, in his own words, so they could pick peanuts. Um, so that's basically what we're dealing with, and that whole history of the hostile environment. Mm. Um, it doesn't start there, but it is a, it is a, it is a good start, I think, to talk about this subject, um, starting in 1948. Um, so. Yeah, so that's basically where we begin. There was, there was um, Labour MPs lobbied Clement Attlee to um, do whatever he could to stop these Caribbean people from coming. Um, I think it was, I think it was thirteen. It was thir- thirteen saying their constituents wouldn't stand for it. Um, these Caribbean people coming to disrupt harmony and the so-called English culture and things. They're very much the language of white supremacy, mm. um, and white superiority. Um, and then the Tories came in and and basically continued that, um, creating policies um, that would disproportionately impact um, Caribbean people. 
uh, particularly um, at work mm. and things like that. Um, what else do they do? Um, yeah. Um, and then when into the 80s, then numbers of Caribbean people who went back to the Caribbean on holidays found out that they could not come back as well, which that story, I only heard who whispers of that story. It's not, it's not been told attached to the Windrush scandal as much as the more current current um, um, testimonies. Um, but yeah, that's basically a history of the hostile environment in, in short bites. Um, but if you did want to learn more, I'd actually recommend people reading the the Guardian investigation. So the stuff done by um, Amelia Gentleman, I found was probably the most accessible um, for people to look at. Um, so you just type into Google Amelia Gentleman, um, um, the Guardian Windrush, and it should it should just come up. And then she wrote a, she wrote a book about it called Windrush Betrayal as well. Um, so. Yeah, that's the the hostile environment is um it didn't just start in two thousand fourteen. It's it, it goes all the way back to nineteen forty eight when a group of Labour MPs went to their Prime Minister Clement Attlee saying they didn't want these Caribbean people coming here to mm. disrupt up an order and things like that. Um but then even that even the Nationality Act comes follows the previous black communities that were in Britain after the First World War as well mm. so after the first world war um uh, many black people came back to britain after fighting um in europe and other places in the world um to find that they couldn't get jobs and things like that and in 1919 there were numbers of so-called racial riots um across britain there was, there was as many as nine in in the port cities um so cardiff liverpool um glasgow um, there was uprisings in London as well. So I think it was um, in East London, so Stepney in East London, um, Poplar, so that, that Canning Town, that, that area of East London. Um, there was the Salford uprisings as well. Um, there was Hull um, and there was South Shields. Um, and basically it wasn't, it wasn't, it, there weren't race riots. Predominantly it was racist white people chasing black people down the streets and brown people as well because um it wasn't just caribbean it was caribbeans west africans mm. somalians indians being um violently harassed in the streets by racist white people specifically white men um because for one reason they they blamed the black people brown people for not for taking their jobs that was the first reason and the second reason they blamed brown people and black people for um taking white women as well because many of them were in interracial relationships as well so those, those 1919 uprisings i guess are a uh, i guess a, a, a pre-chapter to the to the wind to the whole windrush situation in 1948 um but yeah so i think i'll just i'll leave it there because that because saying it started 1948 is very easy um when it starts earlier and goes back to slavery of course as well so. yeah I appreciate that context. And just to confirm my understanding, you said 1919. Yeah. And then you're talking about some of the narratives that are coming out are taking our jobs and taking our women. Wow. Yeah. You, you see, so so yeah. the reason I, I asked to confirm those details is because what's being challenged right now is when you say race riots in Britain, my mind goes back to 1980. I say goes back to, I was not there. 1981. 
that's that's yeah, my Brixton. memory of, of of those sorts of you know you've got Brixton, Liverpool, um, mm. all, I think even Birmingham to some extent. Those those um, and I'm sure my dad told me even Northampton had a, had a had a moment in 1981 um, of, yeah. of those similar sort of um, uprisings. But um, 1919 is a long yeah. way from 1981. So those sentiments have been there. And then when you talk about taking our jobs, that narrative yeah. has been rife for the last. 15 years at least very very prominent in terms of the anti-immigration uh, sentiments we're hearing you know on the news etc but then also before that in the 80s and and even before yeah. that in the, in the 60s and the 40s so it's just it's very cyclical it's almost like every yeah. 20 years they're taking our jobs is the new way to create that division uh, amongst mm. the communities i, I yeah. don't want to get too stuck on this but what are your reflections on that are you seeing a lot of cycles repeating themselves i mean History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. That's what I. That's what I. That's the. That's what I was told by another academic, who put it in a lot succinct terms, but but I did, so I'm going to use that. <laughs> um, so history doesn't repeat itself per se, but it does rhyme. Right. Um, and the way the 1919 uprisings played out, sort of reminds me. It reminds me of what you're saying with, with the 80s, mm. uh, but also. Um, more recently with the Tottenham uprisings. Yeah. Because um, what happened after 1919 as well is that you had numbers of um, black, specifically African and Caribbean men um, being deported under government policies mm. um, and and also their families. So many of them were in mixed unions. So like the white women that chose to marry black men and brown men were then sent out of england and britain as well really um and yeah so like there's there's a whole history there of what happened between the walls but when we were in school you get taught about the first world war and the second world war but not what happened in that in those years between the war but between the wars there was there was obviously there was the uprisings mm. and there was all these there was debates around race and um like so-called immigration but also the deportations as well being pushed by the government. Um, there was anti-mixed anti-mixed race. Um, there was an anti-mixed race report um, published um, in 1930 by a social researcher called Muriel Fletcher, and the black the response from the black community was so high to that report that she had to leave Liverpool because it was not safe for her to stay there. And Liverpool, to, to a certain extent, is still like that. They don't take nonsense from people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's just how Liverpool is. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that, those, those years between the war, I think, are quite important. And then after, in response and reply to that, after the um, Tottenham uprisings, we had similar dis similar discussion. You, you, Tottenham happened in 2011. In 2014, we're now talking about the... Um, um, members of the Windrush generation having their having their status problematized, mm. and then 2018 it, it gets exposed by um, the mainstream media as well, and we're still talking about it now. So I think like history doesn't repeat itself, but it sort of does rhyme, um, and it might happen again in say 20 years or so, maybe yeah. with our generation who were born here but have um, traceable ancestry that isn't from here and considering how our current government treats uh, people who are from somewhere else um it might come to a point where people like you and i are not safe here yeah. as well even though we've done we've
born here and gone to school here and everything. Um, but who knows what could happen. Let's get stuck into then your research. And the first yeah. thing I want to pick up on is the name. Um, Northamptonshire is a place for me or is the place for me? Yeah. That is a, yeah. I saw that <laughs> right away and I'm thinking homage to um, Lord Kitchener there when he's coming yeah. off the Empire Windrush. Landan mm-hmm. is the place <laughs> for me. Yes, yeah. I thought, yes, I'm glad, I'm glad you picked that up and I'm glad you used that yeah. as a title. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the practicalities of the research. What has been your process of collecting or collecting is probably the wrong word, but um, finding part- participants? Because I know you've said about people being sort of referred to. What's that process been like for you? Um, so originally, uh, it was the use of WhatsApp. Like, you, I don't need to explain to you. Like, the the family WhatsApp dynamic <laughs> of of, uh, of not just Caribbean cultural groups, but generally non-British, non uh, yeah, non-British cultural groups. It's it's a dynamic that is um, used for all types of things. Mm. Um, Including gener- including generational um, divides and unity mm. at the same time, um, but I think WhatsApp changed the game for quite a lot of people, especially especially when your family is international, as well. So I think the WhatsApp originally um, helped a lot, and um, in the beginning I um, have June Elizabeth um, to thank for getting me in contact with quite a lot of people in the, in the community. Yeah, uh, June Elizabeth, uh, one of the local community um, uh, people. Her her family was one, I think, was one of the first in North in Northampton. Yeah, in the in the fifties, um, and also um, to thank as well, um, Morcia uh, Morcia Walker as well, um, who also came with um, people that I should talk to. Yeah. Um, um, and then it grew, sort of grew from there. Mm. Um, and then I started posting about it um, and tweeting about it. And now I've put out adverts in local media and press and stuff. So there's stuff in the Chronicle and Echo and Northampton Telegraph. Uh, I think I did that last week. Um, um, and once I've interviewed some people, then they start to tell their friends. And then yeah. I get messages from friends as well. So it's sort of that, that word of mouth type thing too. So word of mouth has actually been more helpful than social media. Um so yeah, so the, the WhatsApp and the sort, of, the, uh, those sorts of messaging messaging tools have been really helpful. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically how it started, and I'm now about halfway through the I'm over halfway through um, the interview process. Um, I'm, I'm a lot further ahead than I thought I would be at this point because um, I gave myself twelve months to interview everyone, um, and I. Basically, I think I'm nearly finished. Well done. Yeah, well done. I think I'll get that before the end of the year. So, with those interviews, Mm. how how have they how have they been? Because I I know, right? You're talking to to particularly um, the generation that came here in the '60s. You're not Mm. getting one story. You know, it's not a succinct story anyway. You know, you're getting plenty of stories branching off. So, so you know, (laughs) what are some of the practical challenges of trying to Um, trying to get a narrative out, or is that part of the joy? Um, that I'll say it's part of the joy. Um, so I'm interviewing not just that generation, the original generation, but also the Windrush children um, and also um, our parents' generation. Yeah. So first generation British Caribbean um, and where they have similarities in, in how they tell stories is that it's never linear. 
all three generations, it's always like it's always it always goes round round in a circle, and um, it's lots of divergent threads that are semi-related, but then they come back to it later <laughs> on. <laughs> um, so that's that's been part of it. I won't use everything they tell me in the interviews, but I can um, use part of it um in the thesis but then i'll also write articles and use what they tell me for conference presentations and stuff yeah. like that so i did a presentation the other week on the uh matter fan canter club on sheep street in northampton um and for people that don't know about it, it matter fan canter basically means um it basically means come guard yourself against self-destruction um and that's what i was told by one of the um, founding members um Lee Bryan, um, and it was a day centre for um, young people in Northampton, but particularly young black people, um, who would go there to be with others in their community, uh, because the West Indian clubs weren't built for them, mm. and they needed somewhere they where they could be themselves without feeling that um, without feeling policed in in but not just by um, white people, but also their own parents as well mm. their parents generation so and many of the people that went there were also um taking part in sort of the ethos and um ethos and uh i guess the uh, uh not sure culture is the right word but the ethos of like rastafari mm. um, and in doing that it made them um a target to, of criminalization and also just prejudiced from their parents who did not care for um, Rastafarianism. In, so there's the whole idea of respectability politics. Mm. They, the Windrush or the elders saw, uh, many of the elders saw Rast, Rasta as unrespectable. So the uh, dreadlocks, Rasta hat, the, and they associated it with things like smoking um, and deviant, deviance. Um, but also the, the politics of Bob Marley as well um sticking it to the system mm. and, and all that stuff and many of the guys that went there were politically that 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 way minded um and so there's there's two there's two stories here one of these young people um sticking it to the system but also another story of many of the eld who we call windrush elders um when they first come here wanted to be part of the system in that sense they what they want so so there's there's there there's a there's there's two juxtaposed stories here that probably need to be told not just in northampton i'm talking about as well, but also around the country where um the children of the windrush generation um were out sticking it sticking it to the system in, in different ways. Yeah. yeah that's what that's what that's what they were saying um whilst their parents on the other hand some some of them just didn't they didn't want to do that and then they didn't like it when their kids were doing that and why are you bringing police to my house for, mm, and stuff, mm. stuff like that um so and and in the beginning some many of them the windrush couldn't understand um that the police weren't out to protect you mm. as well um so there was, there was that side so when the young um black kids were uh, being stopped and searched and things like that and um and then the police turns up at your house it's your fault Mm. And it wasn't until later on that they realised, oh, that the, that the, that the police, were, yeah, they didn't like they didn't like black people. So that's yeah, that's yeah. So um, yeah, these interviews have been just it's been it, they're never they're never linear, which is fine. Mm. 
because I can I can use the data in different ways. Um, some of it will end up in a thesis, some of it will be in articles and stuff. Uh, maybe even lectures that I might do on it and like um, book chapters and stuff like that if I ever get opportunity to write something um, in a in a book of some sort. Um, but yeah, it's th there's lots of applications for this, um, especially when it comes to creative stuff and um, storytelling. Mm. Uh, if we ever did a poetry event on Northampton black communities, there's quite a lot of the stuff in that in those interviews that would be really helpful um, for writing poetry and stories that can be performed and, and, and things like that. Um, I I tend to leave the pleasantries to the end, you know, say thank you. But Trey, this is fascinating. We're midway through and I have to just say, I'm so glad we're doing this episode because for me, I'm learning a lot along the way. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of questions. Forget what I've written down. I don't care the questions I've written down. I'm thinking of questions I want to ask you right away. Just wanted to thank you uh, midway through for that because this is, this is incredibly interesting. When we talk then about, um, you know, originally particularly that first generation or not sure i should say first generation, the elders they wanted to belong they wanted to fit in almost they wanted to be a part of the system you're now talking to them many years later having seen what not only their children but their grandchildren have gone through have you noticed a shift in any of their uh sentiments or reflections on their want or need to fit in has that changed over time or is that still the way they're, they're viewing their position in um, britain some of them have changed over time um but some of them haven't and i found sometimes there is still a, a want to change stuff from within mm. so you, you got to be in it to change it i think is the is the sort of the general idea that some of them had um and still have like you, you can't you can't change universities for example unless you're in the university or if you're in the police you can't change you can't change it unless you're within it um but then others um saw that some of these places that they, they, they were they were designed to exclude and yeah. they weren't yeah there was this change so, yeah so yeah so some people have changed their minds over time and some haven't but then there's but then in, in seeing that there was also a, a huge difference between the original Windrush elders who'd come here when they were when they were adults and the Windrush children who'd come when they were say yeah, true. Six, years old, six years old and 10 years old and 12 years old um and the Windrush children a lot of them are still activists now mm. um and many of them we know in our community as mm. well that's Northampton and in, and in Wallingborough as well mm. what makes the northamptonshire story unique so you know we know we've heard of the the london stories the major city stories yeah. what is it that you've unearthed that makes these stories unique um i think the story of our shoes would, would be one of the ways it's unique okay uh because the shoe factories were populated with caribbean workers in northampton and in wellingborough um juxtaposed to the shrewd narratives we've been told through different ways over the years. I had no idea. That the fact that there was Caribbean people in the factories working, um, it changes how we view that history, where you could probably argue that the shoe and boot industry in Northampton was upheld by 
Caribbean labour. It was our grandparents mm. working in the in the factories in the sixties and the seventies, and in, in the eighties, alongside the, the white working class, and also um, other um, immigrant families from elsewhere. Um, so that's probably one way it's unique. Um, the Mata Fancanto organisation is unique as well. Um, I was told it was the first self-help black organisation in Britain by multiple people that went on to inspire and help others across the East Midlands. So places place like Leicester and Derby. Mm. So black communities over there were helped by MFM. Um, and then I'm also told that it inspired like centres in Manchester and in London. So Northampton as a as a town inspired the city, mm. not, not the other way around. Which I think is also, which is also a, a, a unique um, selling point, um, and the MFM probably puts it into an, into a wider history of um, of um, black radicalism as well, which has also been associated with this with the city. Uh, but Northampton back then is not like it was now. Um, Northampton back then was less built up. There was more fields. Um, so when many of the Windrush generation came. I guess in the 60s and even up to the early 70s, um, they they'd come for cheaper housing because the housing developments were being built back then mm. as well. Um, so when we talk about Northampton back then, we can't think about it as we see it today because it was a whole different place. Geograph how it was built as well, um, whole wholly different place. So when um, so one of my participants. Um, her father came in '48, right? Um, um, and he's the earliest from from what I've gathered. And when he'd when he'd come, the Boughton Green Road area of Northampton was all, was basically fields. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's what that's what we like Northampton. It was a town, but there was a lot of country. Yeah. And it was on your doorstep as well. And my grandmother told me that she used to go scrumping and stuff when they were kids. Um, and they'd go apple picking and strawberry, strawberry picking and very much activities we associate with the rural and the country. But if we said that today, we would people wouldn't they wouldn't link it with that today because yeah. Northampton's it's it's more a bit more urban now and more uh, built up um, than it was back in the sixties. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's one of the unique points of it is that what what I'm dealing with is a is a version of Northampton I have not grown up in um other people have and it's very much one that is as much rural as it is town mm. that's yeah. fascinating that is fa- yeah. because i went to school on that belt on green road so yeah. for however many years of my life what that eight years of my life or mm. seven i was on that road up and down that is an established road it's in my memory i don't know any different and it was countryside wow mm. w- one of the other shows we've got on the aki and saltfish digital network and i must obviously in this moment pay homage to the Caribbean community because I've got a network called Aki and Saltfish. Like this is how much it means to me, right? So um, one of the shows we've got on the network is called Cool, Find, Done, Wicked. And that is all about music. Now, the title of your work is Northamptonshire is the place for me. So has music formed um, any sort of relevance to what you've, what you've researched? I hear people talking about some of the things they did related to musical activities, sound clashes, yeah. what songs were, were popping back yeah. then, I suppose um so so you know trevor hall yeah um, yeah yeah so trevor hall um so for people watching trevor hall 
was one of the founding members of Matafang Hansa. But he he also told me that he was a selector DJ at 13. Wow. As well. Wow. I don't know what I was doing when I was 13, but it wasn't it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't being a selector DJ. But he told me that on the trips they went to, they went, there was trips to the beach and like the seaside and stuff, um, like residential type things. Yeah. And at those places, they um, they would meet other Caribbean um, groups from elsewhere in the country, and they'd meet, and there'd be like domino tournaments and cricket to- matches and stuff. But also there'd be a sound clash between the Northampton group and whoever else was there as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he was. Te- that's what he was telling me. Um, but Northampton music-wise, blues parties. Um, so my my grandma's auntie lived on Burnham Terrace, right? Um, and she had blues events in her basement. In the basement, um, there was blues parties on Derby Road as well. Um, yeah, there was reg- there was regular. Um, and it was every weekend for, for years. Amazing. Um, yeah, someone will be having a party somewhere. Um, of course, they had blues at the West Indian clubs as well mm. on Regent, Regent Square. Um, yeah, so there was there was always something going on. Um, Bob Marley played in the early seventies. Told him um, again. Told him again. Um, yes. Yeah. Which which where, where was it? It was Kings Heath. Yes. Somewhere in Kings Heath. I forgot the name of the venue. And I'm sure the Whalers played without Bob Marley as well at Roadmender um, as part of the tour for Burning, the Burning album in the early 1970s. Um, and yeah, so we had Bob Marley played here. Um, so music wise, there was, there was quite a lot. There was the punk movement mm. happening simultaneously as well with the sound system. Um, um, and of course they had the whole sound system culture. So MFM was a big, was a big focal point of sound system events um of which travel was part of that but also many local people that are still around but today went to those events as well some of them kids when they weren't supposed to go there <laughs> yeah um yeah. they were telling me that they were they were they were too young to go there but that's what they just wanted to go so they they snuck out and um faced the consequences later <laughs> yeah 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 um my dad's got a few of those yeah. stories when he used to sneak out and he's telling me, I probably shouldn't reveal this, but that's uh, fine. It was years ago. He was telling me he used to like sneak out in my granddad's car at like 15 and just drive it to wherever he needed to go, have his party and then drive back. And sometimes he got away with it. Sometimes he didn't get away with it. And obviously back then, parenting was a different style. So he faced yeah. the consequences, as you say. Um, yeah. Just did a quick bit of Google in there. Fantasia was the place in Kings Heath where yeah. Bob Marley played. Yeah. Um, wow. I, like I, knowing Northampton the way I do, I just couldn't imagine someone of Bob Marley's stature in King's Heath playing mm. in a pub. Like that would just be a moment. I'm sure it was a moment. Um, yeah. and, and credit to places like King's Heath for holding the culture down during those times mm. because I think often yeah. uh, they get overlooked, you know, and, and they have moments of history. And mm. um, what, what an iconic moment that would have been. Wow. And um, but artists come from Jamaica, you know, to play MFM, like wow. it, MFM was like it was a big deal at the time. Mm. People would come from all over Britain to go into events at MF. And my, I told my dad's family, um, so my dad's family from Jamaica, but they settled up in the West Midlands and right. Birmingham. But I'm told even those guys came to Northampton during those days 
to watch, go to events at MF and then go back to Birmingham. And that was just normal. There were people coming from all over the UK to go to MF mm. um, and go to events and whatever. Um, but also artists would come from Jamaica to play in Northampton. Mm. And I think, that's, I think that's amazing. That's incredible. It really is. Yeah. I, was, I was speaking to my dad about this the other day, Saturday, yeah. and we were saying... Ah, that was it. Yeah, because I've just moved to Leicester. And I was saying, yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot more to do in Leicester. There's the O2 Academy. I see there's big artists playing there. You've got comedians coming there. And that, that you know, that, that's part of their mm. stop. And my dad was saying, yeah, you know, Northampton used to be a place where people would prioritise it on a tour and have yeah. it on a tour. And now it just isn't. And that is, a, mm. that is a sad state of affairs. And, you know, we were talking earlier about students and, you know, having things for students to do. But also you know, young people that live in Northampton, whether students or not, that placing yourself and having a cultural reference yeah. point is really, really important. So one of the other um, shows that we have on the network is Sofa Sensei's, and that's about uh, combat sports specifically, but sport more generally. And um, I wanted to ask you, did sport form any part of these narratives as well? Because thinking about some of the stories I've heard from my family, cricket was a huge part of what they used to do growing up. And yeah. is that something you've, you've found in the narratives too? Yeah, so the race course was a big hub for sport. Um, it, the race course wasn't just a sport place, it was a meeting place for people, right. in the, people in the Abington area. Um, and the United Social Club cricket team played their matches there as well. Um, and United Social Club were, uh, I think, mainly Caribbean cricket team. I think they had like one white player. Um, Shout out him. So it, yeah, it was a it was a Carib it was a Caribbean cricket team, and they beat everybody. They they went they went everywhere and demolished them and beat them into the ground. Um, in the in the same years that the West Indies were winning, um, um, so prolifically. Mm. Um, and I think at the end of their run, the United Social um, won nineteen league titles. Um, that's how good they were. But what gets me the most is that. I think only one or two of their players were ever picked up for county. Right. Like these, like these guys were like, these guys, some of them probably could have played for England, but I bet because of the racism that mm. was in that era, they just didn't get, they didn't get selected to the same levels that white players would, white players that weren't as good mm. just like, as well. Um, but yeah, these guys, they went around the country and beat everybody. <laughs> or the region and beat everybody. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, that was United Social. They played at the race course, um, and it was also it was also a, a community hub for local Caribbean people too. Um, football also played a role. Um, yeah, so, so the MF had a football team um, called the Persuaders, um, and that was the first black football team. In Northampton, um, and that was convened by a guy called Passville Plumber. Um, so I think I don't think actually I'm not sure if it was MF's football team, but it was it, a lot of the players were from MF. Mm. Um, but Passville was the assistant community relations officer um, at the council at the time, and he'd come from Wolverhampton um, to work with a woman um, called Sarah Berry, who was his who was his, who was his manager like his manager he was the community community relations officer at the council um but yeah that 
that football team was called the Persuaders, and there's photographs of them as well. I think my uncle was in it. Um, I think uh, Pedro, you might know Pedro Samuels as well. He was. I recognise his last name, but not his first name. Um, yeah, I've got a photo. I'll, I'll send. I'll send it to you. Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, please um, do. Um, but yeah, quite people. People that we'd probably seen in Northampton. Um, probably went to MF at some point, and we wouldn't know because, like, unless you take an interest in these stories, people won't tell you. Yeah. It's not going to come up randomly in conversation. It's, got, it's something you've got to purposely go out and ask about, ask about, and, and things like that. Random one, but why do you think it doesn't come up in conversation? Do you think that? Do you think that people have sort of been ground down by the? I see it as an erosion of of of, of blackness in mm. Northampton, because um, I hear a lot of the. Okay, if we look at MFM for example, uh, that building no longer exists. Uh, the reason it no longer exists is because um, funding was pulled from from under their feet, uh, and also the rights to be in the building. And ironically, if I'm right, the, the start of that movement was they squatted in the building. Yeah, but over time well, they sort of legitimised. I, I can tell you about that as well. Let's let's get stuck into that. Let's get stuck into that. Um, so before they squatted the building, um, Lee Bryan and a bunch of people from Northampton drove a van from here to the Gambia in in Africa. Um, and when they were in Africa, they um, Lee told me that um, they 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 saw these young people. Um, on a beach and there was a building there and it was like a community center type of thing mm. and what but what he told me was most that was most inspiring about these young people is that they that they owned they owned the center and there wasn't a person there that was over the age of 18. um so these people these young people were just doing it for themselves mm. um and event and lee and his friends spent i think he said spent about nine months in africa and um, in the gambia and when they come back um the whole idea for mf didn't start at the center but started at lee's house which i think he said was at that time in the lumber tubs area of northampton right um and he said for weeks that he said for weeks that his his house was full of people wanting to know about this the their experiences on the African continent. Um, and then um, after that, they um, he was told that, yeah, we need to find, we need to find somewhere because we, we can't keep doing, we can't keep doing this because it was just getting too packed. Mm. So eventually, um, eventually um, certain events led to them going to find a, to find a space and they did end up squatting um, the old South, old safe Salvation Army um, Citadel um, on Sheep Street in Northampton, um, much to the like uh, opposition of the of the council and also the police. I believe the police gave them trouble when they first did it. Um, Lee told me that he was bit by a dog, a police dog, as well. Yeah, he showed he showed me the scar on his hand as well. Wow. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So. Yeah, there was opposition from the police originally, um, and also when you look at the media representations of them originally squatting the building, it was it, yeah, it, it was racist mm. the way the media um, uh, depicted that. Um, 
um, and there's news clipping. I've got news articles from that as well. Um, so that's effectively in broad strokes how that sort of thing happened. So the ideas for the MF didn't start in this country, they started in the African continent. Um, and Matafankanta in of itself is two is two words, compound it's a, it's compounded words from I guess I think it's the the Wolof language and the Amoric languages. Um I've forgotten which countries they belong to, sorry. Um right. but um yeah, so come guide yourself against self-destruction. In fact, it start the whole story of MF started in Africa, um, but was realized in this country. Um so it's as much African as it is Caribbean, mm. as it is British. Um so yeah, that's basically where it all began. Um and when you look at what they were doing in that building, um, if we're talking about decolonization as yeah. well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were actually doing it. They they weren't it wasn't just it wasn't just academic theories. It was they were they were actually doing it. Um much to the upset of other organizations around them, um, including not just white people and organizations, um, but also some of the local Caribbean organizations that wanted to be the in wanted to be, to be wanted to be included into the mainstream. The MF were about doing it for themselves and um and that was really a form of decolonization because they were they were decolonizing their minds in that sense because there was there was education in that building around loving your African culture and history um trucks in opposition to the society the white society that, that would say no you need to you need to be oppressed mm. um and that's basically what they were doing um and learning all of the harmful stuff that British society had taught them um so think about decolonization and decolonizing the mind um the guys at mf through rasta and things like that were doing that um and even to say that today would still be seen as confrontational and um radical even years later um but yeah that's basically where how mf started and there's obviously there's, there's nuances within that yeah and it's not a, it's not a linear history either um so yeah there, there's there's loads of stuff that hasn't been that won't get covered in the in the news articles but if you go out and talk to people about it some of them might tell you as well i i've learned an incredible amount during this <laughs> and um one of the questions i was going to ask you was around what did you learn about yourself during this process um and i will i'll get to that but yeah. if you're watching this right now and you're one of the viewers or the listeners please drop a comment let us know what you've learned because i guarantee you there's something in here that you would have learned um you know if you want to get involved in Trey's research i'll make sure i put all his details below and all the recommendations he's made as well below too in the description um please do reach out this has been a real education um and i hope i hope this goes somewhere but before i ask you about what you learned about yourself i want to ask you what you hope comes of this research so once it's out once it's ready once all the, le the lectures are prepared once all the the um the articles are written and the dissertation mm. is done and the thesis is complete what do you want to come of this? Because right now I'm getting a sense that the Midlands is 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 an underserved area of the country mm. in terms of this history. What do you want people to do with this information? Um, I think people just Black British history happened everywhere across Britain, um, and not just the cities. So I think it might get people to think a bit more when they go to go to somewhere that doesn't look that's not diverse. Mm. 
historically it might have been. Um, so when I go out, when I go to the rural areas of the country, um, I know that there would have been some sort of, there would have been a black history of, of some sort there yeah. years ago. And I think that's what I want to get people to think about. Uh, but in terms of the research and how it's used, I think um, the stories that get told need to change. And hopefully it gets, it, it might get picked up to inspire radio drama, for example. Right. Which, is, which might be one way to talk about these histories. You could do a whole radio drama about sort of the, the Windrush arrivals in Northampton and Northamptonshire um, in the 50s and 60s. Um, you could do stories about the MF Club. Um, it, it could be turned into theatre uh, if, if they wanted to. Amazing. But even young people's theatre groups could pick it up if they wanted to. Um, so youth theatre. Um, and also like in schools as well. Like I'm thinking about schools not like, uh, like NSB, for, for example. NSB has a um, quite a substantial population of of young black boys, um, and I know they'll get probably get a lot out of quite a few of the stories that are found in terms of especially the, the Matafan Hunter Club. That'll be one um, group. The football, the Persuaders football team, the cricket teams as well. Um, um, yeah, so I think that'll be one side. Another side. Um, the more gendered side as well with nursing. Mm. Um, so many of the black nurses worked at St. Edmunds, um, St. Crispin's and St. Andrews. Um, so there's another history there which could be told through different means. Um, and also stories around mental health as well. So a few months ago, I watched a film called The Barrel Children, um, which is, um, so there's a journalist at The Independent called Nadine White. Yeah. Um, and she made this film called The Barrel Children, which was about the children that, that were, were left in the Caribbean when the Windrush came to Britain to work. Um, and what I found in uh, the, some of the interviews as well is that some of the Windrush children were originally left in the Caribbean to be raised by grandparents and other family members. So there's another discussion around mental health there that possibly could be had. Um, in our community um in different ways um and the stories that could tell as well so um edu educationally what what can the stories of local of, of the windrush in northampton Shear tell us about um mental health um and trauma as well and um the trauma of attachment and th things like mm. that um so yeah um racism in school is still a problem today it was a problem back then um, many of my participants have said that school was more about survival than education. And there are very specific schools, which I would not name on this podcast, <laughs> but um, um, that still have problems today. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of ways that the research can be disseminated in an accessible way. Mm. Um, that goes beyond academia into more accessible um mediums like like films like tv shows um like so for example every year um there's northampton film festival um and what i wouldn't be against if some if, if someone wanted to make a short film based on some part of the research i'll let them do it i'll say go go and do it <laughs> and just invite just invite me to the to the thing so i can watch it um so there we yeah, are so there's, so there's loads of different ways we could 
that could use it. You heard it here first. If you are an aspiring <laughs> or an established filmmaker and you yeah. want the inspiration for your next story, reach out to Trey. He's got it. And then all you got to do is invite him and we wouldn't mind a little invite to akinsoulfish.gmail.com. Please do get in touch. Um, and I'd love to see it. Honestly, that has been incredible. And, and this is one of the main reasons why it's funny. My degree is in sociology. And I, I, I got through the degree. It was a process, you know. But I, I enjoyed sociology way more after when I started investigating public sociology and, and what it actually meant for day-to-day life and the, some of the stories and narratives about um, our societies shifting over time. I really enjoy that, that shift in time and space. It, it fascinates me. And this, this has been an experience in that. So I just want to thank you again for your time. And I suppose my final question is around what did you learn about yourself during this process? Um, I learned that I had more of a Caribbean upbringing than I thought, than I thought I did. Um, so when I was growing up, my um, my grandparents, we they bathed me in, de- in dental. <laughs> like, like, like my parents, like my parents as well. Um, yeah. And then we'd wake up on a, on a Sunday, every 7 a.m. <laughs> and hear just soca music, like blasting from downstairs. Incense. <laughs> yeah, and that, all of that stuff. Um, all the food as well, the Caribbean food. Yeah. All of that. Um, and the, just growing up in the sort of the community culture of, of my family on both sides of my family, on my mum's side and my dad's side. Um, cause I went, I went to Birmingham every month basically for years, um, uh, to visit my grandparents in, um, in the West Midlands. And when I was there, my grandparents also had parties during the summer and that, my dad's side of the family is, is massive. It's huge. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think, to be honest, I, I had a lot of the things growing up that my parents had mm. when they were growing up, and they, they tried their utmost to sort of replicate that community element um, just in just in this new generation. But I think today's generation growing up don't have that mm. as much. Um, so, yeah, I think in talking to some of the elders and my parents generation and the Windrush children um it showed me that I had more of a Caribbean upbringing than I thought so it's Caribbean upbringing just in England like they like they did um that that Detto yeah. is bringing about some serious memories man. Yeah. That's, that is hilarious I'm so yeah. glad you brought yeah. it up oh Detto. man yeah <laughs> yeah clean I was super clean was super clean mm-hmm. I actually had that discussion yeah. literally uh, two days ago, in terms of why am I buying Dettol? I says you don't know, you don't know the reasons yet. Wait, wait and see, wait and see. Um, wow. Um, right. One of the things I wanted to just ask you is is a practical question around where can people find yeah. out more about you in terms of your social media profiles? How can they follow your journey? Um, so social media wise, um, Trey Ventil. So T R E V E N T O U R. Um, on most platforms you should on twitter um instagram and uh facebook that should all come up um and but i'm taking things um with the phd via email as well um if i had to send it to my kingston one which is quite annoying because it's like it's sort of letters and numbers i'll put it in the description yeah yeah so i'll i'll send that to you brilliant and you put it in the the description yeah that's no problem at all well yeah that has been Before Our Friends Die on the Akin Selfish Digital Network. This 
should come out during October, which is Black History Month in the UK. And I, I'm, I'm literally speechless. I think you'll see at a few points watching this back, my face is open. My mouth is open. I'm shocked. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm studying. I'm super grateful for your time, Trey. It's been amazing. Uh, I knew. We, we, we picked this conversation up months ago, like six months ago, almost longer probably. As soon as I heard about yeah. this research, I knew it would be a great one. And I'm so glad that we made it happen. So thank you. Uh, listen, if you've enjoyed that, please do follow Trey on social media as well as at Before Our Friends Die Pod on Instagram and Aki and Saltfish on uh, Twitter. We are there, we are available and we are always active. So make sure you get in touch with us. Aki and Saltfish at gmail.com. Leave us a comment or a question and we'll be happy to get back to you. And finally, please do share this episode and the network with your friends and family. It will really help us grow. And leaving us a five-star review as well is always welcome welcome thank you so so much trey thank you and take care make sure you stay tuned for part two next week where we get to know trey with our seven signature questions until then see you next time take care